keep your Bibles open there if you will. Uh, We'll be working our way through this passage in a moment. Second mouse gets the cheese, right? We're supposed to be able to look at the mistakes of others who've gone before us and do better to get the prize. Now why else do you think we get these stories of the rather disappointing failures of these disciples. It's not inspiring. They're not examples of what to do. When you read these accounts, it's kind of disappointing. You want to say to these men, no, don't do that. Don't say that. Don't you get it? But you know, don't you, that it's for our benefit that their blooper reels are carefully and accurately preserved for us in the form that we have it. And in your mind as you slam them, as you feel like wanting to slap them upside the head and tell them to get with the program, your critique might be right. But if we're going to be consistent, it's that same critique we've got to turn around and apply to ourselves. Are we making the same mistakes that these men did? Otherwise, it's us who's guilty of, is it, pot calling the kettle black. It's always much easier to see faults in other people than to notice them in ourselves and even if we're doing the same things but people being people I'm not saying we're all identical but when it comes to faith it seems like there's these patterns of struggles that many of us fall into and because we're people like these people are people I think I think we feel the pull of these same things sometimes and so this morning as we look at these what I'm calling three sad realities get played out Uh, in the characters in these events in Luke? Would you be open to hear what God might be showing you, even about yourself or your context that you need to attend to? And so I'll ask whether you'd be willing to pause now and pray with me to that end. Let's pray. Father, we ask that even this next uh, little while that we spend in your word, that you might be at work in us, that those barriers, uh, those excuses that we set up sometimes to protect ourselves and, and, to, and to tell ourselves that we're okay, we pray that you might break through some of those and show us uh, parts of our lives perhaps that we might need to work on, that your spirit would uh, speak, that you'd help us all to be listening. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now these disciples, uh, at least Peter, James and John, they've just seen Jesus in a whole new light. They've just come down from the mountain where Jesus has revealed himself in this transfigured glory. He's peeled back a layer of reality for them to show them who he really is in all his glory. They've just seen this vision of Jesus like they've never seen before. And they've heard in amongst the brilliance of light, the voice of God the Father saying about Jesus, This is my son. My chosen king. Listen to him. And so expectations coming down off the mountain are pretty high. But as they come down from the mountain, we hit this rather disappointing collection of at least three scenes where the sad reality of life in the real world kicks right back in. There's this momentum building as Jesus has been telling them pretty explicitly who he is and what he's come to do. And just as they're finally getting it, the brakes get slammed on three times. Jesus has to rebuke his disciples by the end of each one of these scenes. And it's not like they're unexcited about Jesus. They've seen some amazing things. They're still following him, but 
maybe it's like coming off a Sunday where you've had a wonderful church service and a, and a revitalizing time with God and his people, only to hit the harsh reality of you know, Monday morning and that mountain to climb all over again. And you're making bad calls sometimes in those weeks. And what we'll see tangling people up this morning is three things, unbelief, pride, and our own agendas, our own preoccupations that just crowd out to the point where they miss Jesus altogether. It's like a recipe for how to be unhealthy, unfruitful, and stunted in your growth. We've said as a church that we want to be, uh, this year and in the next five years, healthy and fruitful and have plenty of space to grow. So here's three stories about what not to do. The first scene is about how Jesus' disciples deal with a man whose only child was under demonic possession. Verse 37 to 45. Luke 9, 37 to 45. Now we don't see too much of that in our part of the world, but it's a pretty intense experience if you can imagine putting yourself in a room with this guy's son when he's going through one of these demonic episodes. Uh, Detail starts in verse 37, so if you'll read with me. The next day when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him and he, is, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they couldn't. So he's come to Jesus' disciples begging for help. Because his father's heard about what Jesus has been doing for people. Uh, he's been healing, he's been you know, it has authority over even the spiritual forces that are at work in the world. And so he comes and he brings his son looking for help. But he's disappointed, isn't he? Now there he is, uh, and they can't, they can't help him, these disciples. Jesus isn't there. Uh, he just happened to be up on the mountain with Peter, James and John when this man probably first arrived. And the other disciples, it seems like they they had a go at trying to help this guy, to to drive out this spirit that was torturing his son, but they couldn't do it. Now, they've had experiences with this sort of thing before, just even earlier in the same chapter, at the start of uh, verses 1 and 2 in chapter 9. Jesus sent them out into the countryside, all all 12 of them, to do things like this, to, to, to drive out demons, to heal people's sicknesses and diseases. So what's wrong here? Why didn't it work? Why couldn't they help this boy? And Jesus diagnoses the problem. And it's a problem not just with an individual, but with a generation. He addresses all of them when he says in verse 41, Oh, unbelieving and perverse generation, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? See, whether it's the father or the child, all the way to the disciples, what seems to be the problem was that they didn't believe that anything could be done. And it's perverse because God's already shown that he's good for it. I think it's more on the fold of the disciples than this man, to be honest, because this man has come. He's come bringing the boy, hoping and asking and begging for help. But maybe... In the heat of the moment, when you're face to face with this screaming, foaming, demonic thing and it's real, 
You know, it was right there in front of you, the immediacy of the problem, the fact that this time Jesus is far away. He's up on the mountain. He's been gone for the day. And you're here facing this demon. You're no expert. And so your confidence in what you're seeing God do dries up and fails. And I'd criticize these guys, but I know exactly what that feels like. Jesus feels distant. The pressure's on. You have to make a choice. And you don't always choose to live by faith. We don't do that, do we? Even though we know we should. Sometimes the situation makes us feel helpless to doubt our ability, to doubt that God's there and that he's watching. That's the sad reality of Monday morning for, for some of us. You're under pressure. God seems far away. Nothing's going to change the situation. And yeah, we probably should know better. And yes, we are super glad that Jesus is willing to stay and put up with us, even till now. Jesus says, bring your son here. And then he goes on, you see, to cut through the hold that this demon had on the boy. And he gives him back to his father. Because Jesus is willing and able to help this unbelieving generation. He steps through the fog of their unbelief to give them a reason to be amazed. We read in Romans, there is no one righteous, not even one. No one who seeks God, no one who understands. How exasperating it must have been for Jesus then and now to work with people who are slow to believe, who often don't understand what he's on about, even when he says it to them straight. Look at, look at um, the second half of verse 43. So he's healed this boy, people are amazed. And while everyone was marveling at what Jesus did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men, but they didn't understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so they didn't grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him. It's frustrating, but it cuts pretty close to home sometimes. God speaks, and we only see what we want to see. And we might just miss the heart of what God's saying, even as we look at his word. It wasn't that many verses ago when God said on the mountaintop, this is my son, listen to him. And yet we don't always find it so easy to believe. I'm afraid it doesn't get much better in the second story. Uh, Verse 46 is also sadly familiar. Even if we're not saying it out loud like these guys in their argument, verse 46, an argument started among the disciples as to which of them is the greatest. Their timing is awful. Uh, Jesus has just told them he's going to submit himself to betrayal and suffering for the sake of the world, and here they are, arguing about who's going to be the greatest when Jesus is saying he's going to be the servant of all. They're not just not understanding what Jesus is about, they're totally moving in the opposite direction of the spirit of what Jesus' mission is. What they're doing is very human, isn't it? It's a social game that we play. And for some of us, the game that's always on. Even understated Aussies who, culturally speaking, you know, we don't like to blow our own trumpets and we look down on our American friends who do so. Still, we find, we find ways of making sure people know and people see us in a pretty good light. And there's a lot of pride even amongst battlers. 
and even amongst, or certainly amongst Southeast Asian sort of culture, keeping face and honour shame, that's, that matters. Who is the greatest is what the disciples are arguing about. I don't know what matrix they use to assess that. I know our super pragmatic world today rewards ability. You know, the strongest, the bravest, the fastest, the smartest, the most beautiful, the most charismatic, the most powerful, the most gifted, they're the great ones, aren't they? And the great tragedy is that we make some people out to be more important than other people on that basis. Celebrities are more important than non-celebrities. The rich are more important than the poor. The beautiful more important than the less beautiful. The more able more important than the less able. And so the second sad reality is that we so easily buy into that game and we play to win. But Jesus, in verse 47, uh, if you look at it, 47 and 48, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, Whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For he who is least among you, he is the greatest. You see what he does there? He flips the value system on its head. Who is worthy of esteem? It's the little ones of the world. And whoever accepts and welcomes a little one out of the fact they see the world like Jesus sees the world, Jesus says, it's like you welcome me and you welcome my father. And there are lots of different types of little ones in our world. I think Jesus picked a child because in that sort of status uh, status-wise in the ancient world, small children really didn't have much of a place. They didn't rank very highly. And as an object lesson, you know, you put a toddler next to a grown man, you want to play the comparison game when it comes to capability. There's no comparison. The adult is always going to be stronger, faster, smarter. But Jesus' point is, the person who is considered least important, if you welcome that person, if you pay attention to a child and you're willing to notice and serve others who others think very little of, you serve Jesus in that, and by extension, God. I was not even saying that people who serve in this way are great. I think what he's doing is elevating the worth of these little ones. He says in verse 48, Whoever is least among you, that's the greatest subverting and inverting the whole power and status game. And we as a church, we've said we want to get better at this in particular, at esteeming little ones um, in our society, in the world. And so do watch this space. One of the targets we've set for ourselves in the vision moving forward is to do a whole lot more as a church to serve the vulnerable people in our world and pay attention to and, and serve the least and so hopefully uh, the missions committee or some subcommittee or other will come with, propos- with proposals that will help us move forward, that we can move to you know, adopt and really get behind as a whole church community, to own and embrace the least amongst us. But it's so easy to get drawn into entertaining our pride and ranking yourself against other people, and it can be such an ungodly game.
The third sad reality we see in this next passage, I think, is the saddest of them all. It's a non-event, really, because nothing happens. That's what's so sad. So much potential. And nothing eventuates because these people, their own agendas get in the way. I come look at verse 51. Uh, As the time approached for Jesus to be taken to heaven, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent out messengers ahead who went into the Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Now when the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them and they went to another village. Look, I'm not going to give you a long history lesson about why Samaritans and Jews didn't get along. You can look that up for yourself if you're interested. The sad thing is I probably don't have to explain because you've seen time and time again one group of people who hates another group of people. You know that story. It's mutual and it's ugly and it's ingrained from generation to generation and the war just doesn't end. It comes to part of one culture to be against another culture. That's part of what defines them. And so we see here Jesus is setting out for Jerusalem. He's there to fulfill his mission. He's going to the cross. And en route is this Samaritan village. And as is Jesus' habit, he sends on messengers ahead to go into the village to prepare his place for him to stay. But as soon as these Samaritans find out where Jesus and his group are heading to Jerusalem, boo hiss. That's all it takes for them to turn Jesus away. You're heading to the city of our enemy? We don't want anything to do with you. Go away. And you know the sort of thing Jesus has been doing in every single place that he goes. Wherever he goes, he's healing, he's teaching, he's blessing, he's casting out people's demons, he's restoring that patch of the world, giving people a chance to be reconciled to God. Now in that Samaritan village that you don't know anything about really, but you think there were no sick people in that town? You think there were no people grieving and and could have used a little bit of Jesus' help? People who were you know, afflicted with all sorts of different illnesses and, and demons and things going on in their lives that only God could have stepped in to help them with. But they shoot themselves in the foot, don't they? Because of their political preoccupation, their situation against Israel. Anyone heading to Jerusalem is unwelcome. That's their policy. They don't even give themselves a chance to find out what Jesus could do for them. (laughs) And James and John, two of Jesus' disciples, they take it personally and they want to, what do they say? Uh, Verse 54, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? They're as bad as the Samaritans, caught up in this cycle of conflict. I don't know how serious they were about their ability to do this sort of thing. I mean, James and John, they were just on the mountain with Jesus, when they saw him transfigured, they saw Moses, they saw Elijah, maybe they got a bit excited and a bit inspired by seeing Elijah, wanting to bring some Old Testament retribution. But Jesus says, no, you've missed the point, just like they missed the point. Don't 
let their rejection of you and your instinctive response to opposition cloud your discipleship. It's scary how easy it is for our own agendas, our own baggage to get in the way of what Jesus might otherwise be doing in us and through us. These Samaritans, they couldn't get past their own prejudices. And there's a real sadness when our problems and our issues, which are real problems and real issues, but they loom so large sometimes that there's just no room and no space for Jesus to factor in anywhere. Sometimes it's not even problems or issues. It's neutral or positive stuff. People's pursuits and our goals and our dreams and the things that we're doing, these preoccupations that so fill up our lives and our headspace that there's just no room for any change that Jesus might bring, any gospel that he might have for us. And you know, these Samaritans, they'll never know that he just might be the one who can offer them peace in their situation of conflict. They'll never know that he might be the one who might be able to reorient their their lives in ways that actually makes a difference. Because they've sent him packing, haven't they? They've sent him packing. No room for you here. Move along. They're so focused on their own stuff that they miss him altogether. Now please don't let that happen to you. None of this actually. Not, Not your own agendas, not getting tripped up by your own pride, not letting the hardness of your circumstance dry up your faith in God when things get tough. Because God can come through for you. The disciples' journey of faith, even when they fail, even when they stuff up, I think is meant to help us with our journey of faith. And my prayer this morning is that God might help us to keep walking with him. Amen. three sad realities that Johnny's reminded us of that we can easily, I'm 